And we'll just read verse 8 as we begin. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 8, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, Nearly Father, we thank you once again for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to minister in this way. Uh, Lord, we pray for each of the, uh, the people watching today, that you bless each and every one of them, you speak to our hearts through your word. Lord, I pray that you would empower me now through the Spirit, that it would be your words, that it would be your thoughts, and that, Lord, you would teach us, refresh us through your word, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, of course, last Sunday we uh, touched on verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2. We, we talked about the fact that on the seventh day the Lord rested because his work is now complete. And we talked about how, um, briefly talked about the fact that, you know, it sets in place the whole seven-day week and one day set aside for the Lord uh, for rest and for worship to him. And I want to move on now to verse 4 and following because beginning in verse Four of chapter 2, um, we find now described for us in greater detail, if you like, um, some of the events of day 6 of creation. So we sort of backtrack a little bit here, we go back to day 6 of creation, um, and we focus on the creation of man and his placement in the Garden of Eden. And it's important for us to understand that this chapter, chapter 2, in no way contradicts chapter 1. And what we've learnt there. Uh, rather, it fills in <clears throat> some of the details for us. It's complementary to chapter 1. In verse 4 to 7, we're given a brief reminder of what we've already extensively looked at in chapter 1. Uh, the writer reviews for us the fact that when the earth was first created, first formed, it was void of life and there was no rain cycle upon the earth. Let's just read verse 4. <clears throat> says, these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground. And so we get this uh, brief overview. The earth was void of life. There's no plants as yet, there's no rain cycle upon the earth. Instead of rain, we have this mist. Verse 6 tells us that. Okay, But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So there's this mist instead. And we talked about this when we studied chapter 1. We talked about the fact that this was most likely caused by the firmament that God had put in place around the earth, that water canopy, okay, which created those perfect living conditions upon the earth and it would have created the conditions for this mist, this heavy mist to go up and to water the earth each day. And then verse 7 of course recounts for us uh, the, the wonderful truth that man is created in God's image. Okay, verse 7, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And so Again, the writer of Genesis here reviews this fact that God formed man. Okay, man, we talked about extensively, is God's special, unique creation. God formed man out of the dust of the earth, and then God gave him life. And so verse 4 to 7 is really a brief overview 
of what we've already looked at. And that brings us to verse 8 and following, where the writer now, as I said at the start, he takes us back, if you like, to verse, uh, sorry, to day 6 of creation and focuses on day 6 and, and fills in some things about day 6 of creation. And here we learn that there's this special garden, which we all know about, we've all heard of, the, the Garden of Eden. This garden that God has planted for man, for Adam to dwell in. And it's this garden, the Garden of Eden, that I want us to spend our time focusing on this morning. And so first of all here this morning we see the trees of the garden. The trees of the garden. Look at me in verse 8. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life also is in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. At the end of chapter 1, we were told that God had given man the privilege of subduing and having dominion over the rest of his creation. I just read verse 28 of chapter 1. It says, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And so we talked about this extensively last week, this idea that man has been given this privilege of being God's steward here on earth, steward over the rest of God's creation. But here in chapter 2, we're told about this particular special place that's prepared by God for Adam and Eve to call home. And the region where this garden, garden is planted is called Eden. Okay, verse 8 tells us that. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And then in verse 10, And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And so it's the region that's called Eden. Okay, This is the region, this is the place where this garden is planted by God. And Eden, the word Eden means delight or place of much water. And really, uh, that name suggests to us a paradise, doesn't it? Okay, It suggests to us a place that is a delight to live in. It's a place of much water. It's a paradise designed by God himself. And verse 9 gives us a description of this garden. Notice the first part of the verse. It says, And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So the first part of the verse tells us that God planted this, this garden, this beautiful garden, and God fills it with every kind of fruit tree imaginable. Every kind of fruit tree that you and I can think of is here in this garden for Adam to partake of. Now, the creation of plant life, of course, was God's work on day three of creation. And we could go back to chapter one and read verse 11 to 13, um, where it talks about that. God created plant life and he filled the earth with it. And so this particular place is a, uh, a special place, if you like, given special attention on that day. As God creates the plant life, God gives this place, Eden, this special attention as he creates this beautiful garden this place for Adam to call home. It's lush, it's beautiful, it's full of food. The commentator Gill 
wrote this. He said, A peculiar spot of ground was fixed on for man and stocked with trees of all sort for his use, not only to bear fruit, uh, which would be suitable and agreeable food for him, but, also, but, but others also which would yield him delight to look at, such as the tall cedars for their loftiness, spreading branches and green leaves with many others, so that not only were the trees to gratify the senses of tasting and smelling, but that of sight. And so it's this beautiful garden. It supplies his food, and it's also beautiful to look at. It gives uh, that wonderful sight as well to Adam and Eve as they live there. So God creates this wonderful, beautiful place filled with all these kinds of trees. And in the midst of those trees, we're told about two uh, special and important trees. And we see that there at the end of verse 9. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. These are the two unique trees found nowhere else on earth but here in the midst of this garden. Now the tree of life here first of all, it says the tree of life also in the midst of the garden. The tree of life is said to be in the midst or in the very center of this garden. That's where the tree of life is planted by God. And of course, the fruit of the tree of life, as the name suggests, would have enabled mortal dying man to live forever. Uh, In chapter 3 of Genesis, let's just turn over there, chapter 3 and verse 22, we read this. It says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of Life. Verse 22 tells us that if he would eat of the tree of life, he would live forever. So this is what the fruit would do. It would impart life to the one eating it. Makes it very clear this is the effect of the, tr- the fruit of the tree of life. Now we may sit here and wonder, you know, how can a physical fruit halt the aging process in the human body? But it's something that we're told simply told in the word of God and therefore we accept it by faith don't we we accept by faith that God created this tree to do that very thing now the commentator Morris writes this he says since God is the giver of life he can give it either directly or indirectly through whatever secondary agency he might might choose and that's the point isn't it God is the giver of life and God therefore can choose to give life through whatever means he seems fit. And God created this tree, this tree of life, which would have enabled Adam, would have enabled man to live forever if he was to partake of it. In Revelation 22 and verse 2, we're told that this tree will be growing in the new Jerusalem. Let's just turn over there. Revelation 22 and verse 2. Uh, Starting verse 1, Revelation 22, verse 1, it says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the midst of the street of it, 
And on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so we're told that in the New Jerusalem, this tree will be there, the tree of life, and it's for the healing or the health of the nations. The second tree mentioned here, back in Genesis chapter 2, is none other than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's go to the end of verse 9 again. It says, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now in chapter 3 and verse 6, we're told that the fruit, the fruit of this tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, so it obviously looked good, and it was a tree desired to make one wise. Now, eating the fruit of this tree would have given them experiential knowledge of good and evil. But of course, at the same time, it would bring death. Verse 17 of chapter 2, it says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And so if you like, it's the very opposite of the tree of life, isn't it? The tree of life would sustain them if they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it would lead to death. The very opposite would happen. Now the commentator Morris writes this, he says, it would certainly become a tree of knowing evil. As soon as man disobeyed God's word concerning it, he would know evil experientially, he already knew good, and the breaking of fellowship with God would cut him off from the life that has its source only in God. And that's what this tree was all about, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By partaking of it, they would understand good and evil experientially, and they would die. That was the consequence. And so these are the trees of the Garden of Eden, and we will come back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil later on. But secondly, this morning, I want us to consider the topography of the garden. We've talked about the trees of the garden. I want us to look now at the topography of the garden. Verse 10 says, And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison. That is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is bdellium and the onyx stone, and then the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. The name of the third river is Hithakel. That is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The writer now, if you like, describes for us the topography of the region where this garden is planted, or the geography. Uh, it gives us a description of the land, and really... As we'll see, the description of the land here is to help us to visualize it. You know, we could almost draw a, a picture, a map from above of the area from this description. You see, a wonderful, beautiful, lush garden like this would naturally need an abundance of water. You know, as we said, the name Eden means a place of much water, okay, or delight. And so it needs a, a, an abundance of water, it needs a water source, and verse 10 tells us that there's this river flowing through the garden. It says in verse 10, And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. And so the source of water, the, the life source for this garden, if you like, is this river that's flowing through the garden itself. 
And the source of this river is said to be Eden. Okay, it says, and the river went out of Eden to water the garden. So the source of the river is in the region of Eden, the region where this garden is planted. And so because there's no rainfall yet upon the earth, we know that from verse 6 as we read earlier, because there's no rainfall upon the earth, this tells us that the source of this, this river has to be something other than rain. Okay, It can't be rainfall upon the mountains. There has to be something else that is the source of this river. And so it would seem to be that it's a continual spring. It's a continual spring fed from an underground reservoir of some sort. And that's where this water is being forced out of the ground, flowing now through the Garden of Eden. There's this continual uh, river flowing. And you know, the water flow of this river must have been great as well. It's not just a little trickle. It must have been quite a large uh, river because once it's flowed through the Garden of Eden, we're told it becomes four heads okay, at the end of verse 10. Okay, and became four heads. In other words, it separates into four separate rivers. So this is quite a large spring that's feeding this, this large river, which then flows into these four separate rivers once it's, it's gone through the Garden of Eden. And so you begin to visualize it, can't you? Okay, you've got this water source, this river, your Eden, the Garden of Eden, flowing through, and then on the other side it parts into four rivers. We can get a, a visual picture of the topography here of the land. Now, looking at the names of the lands uh, of the rivers here, we're actually given the names of the rivers here in verse 11 to 14. Let's just read it again quickly. It says, The name of the first is Pison. Uh, that is it, which can pass of the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good, and uh, there is Bedellium and the onyx stone. The name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that can pass of the whole land of Ethiopia. The name of the third river is Hidekel. That is it, which goeth toward the east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. Now, I'm sure as we read through those names there, Pihon, uh, sorry, Pison, Gihon, Hidekel, and Euphrates, that immediately a couple of names are familiar. Well, at least one name there is familiar. You know, the river Euphrates, that's a name we've heard before. We've heard about the river Euphrates. Uh, it's, it's mentioned numerous times, well, that name is mentioned numerous times throughout the scriptures and, and it's referring to a river that flows near Babylon, that flows through that region. Uh, and today this region, of course, is called Iraq. It doesn't just flow through Iraq, it flows through Syria as well. And that river is still going by that name, Euphrates. The second name that is familiar is Hithakel. Now, at first, it might not seem to be Familiar, but it is another name used for the Tigris River. And we see it used that way in Daniel chapter 10. Just turn over there to Daniel chapter 10. In Daniel chapter 10 and verse 4, we read this. It says, In the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hidekel. So Daniel here uses this name and he uses it to refer to the, the Tigris River. And again, that river is in modern day Iraq. So you've got these two rivers going by these two familiar names uh, located in Iraq today. Now we have no information about the other two river names, okay, Pison and Gihon. We don't find any rivers called by those names in the Word of God anywhere else 
And we don't find it anywhere else in history really either, these two names used referring to rivers. And what we're told here in Genesis, we're told simply that the, the Pison River encircles the land of Havilah. And again, we don't know where Havilah is. Don't know what region that is. We know nothing about it. And we're told the Gihon encircles the land of Ethiopia. And you're thinking, Ethiopia, we, we know that name. That's a familiar name as well. And Assyria is mentioned there too in verse 14. Another familiar name. And now, even though some of these names are familiar, you know, Euphrates, Tigris, or Hittichel, and Ethiopia, and Assyria, even though some of these names are familiar, we shouldn't begin to think that somehow we can use those names and use those rivers named by those today as a reference point to find in the Garden of Eden. We simply cannot use present places given these same names to determine the location of the Garden of Eden. You know, the writer in Genesis chapter 2 here, the writer is giving us a description of the world before the flood. Before the flood. Describing the land, describing the topography before the flood and things changed during the flood drastically upon the earth. The commentator Morris writes this. He says the names were remembered by the survivors of the flood and then given to people or places in the post-flood world in memory of those earlier names of which they were somehow reminded later. Those who have tried to identify the Garden of Eden as in the present Tigris-Euphrates region fail to realize that these pre-flood rivers were completely obliterated by the flood and have no physical connection with their counterparts in the present world. We need to understand that. You know, Noah and his sons, they came off the ark, they've looked at rivers, they've gone, oh, we'll call that Euphrates. They've called it a name of a river they used to know because it looked familiar, whatever it might be. But the region has changed, the, the topography has changed, so we cannot make an assumption about where the Garden of Eden is. The place doesn't exist. So why does the the Word of God include this description of the topography, description of the geography then for us? Well, as I said, it really gives us a visual picture, doesn't it? Really, it just describes for us the layout of the land. It helps us to understand what the the pre-flood world looked like. There was this wonderful garden with this river flowing through it that spread out into four heads. And Adam and his family were living in that region. Well, Adam, sorry, and Eve were living in the region of the Garden of Eden. So we get a visual picture of the garden by the description of the topography here. Thirdly, this morning, I want us to consider the tenets of the garden. We've talked about the trees and we've talked about the topography. Now, thirdly, we see the tenets of the garden. Verse 15, it says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. In verse 15, we're again told about the tenants of the garden. We already were told in verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden eastward of Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And verse 15 picks that back up again after the description in the middle, picks it up again and says, Adam is placed in this garden by God. This is to be his home. But you know, Adam is also given here work to do. He's not just put in the garden and then left there to just lays around and do nothing. God puts him in the garden and God gives him work to do. You know, last Sunday we talked about the, the fact that man is given the responsibility of being God's steward here on earth. 
Well, here in verse 15, we're told he has the particular responsibility of caring for this garden. Caring for the garden that God has planted for him to call home. You see, Adam in verse 15 here is instructed to dress it and to keep it. To dress the garden and to keep the garden. To till the soil and to keep the garden as well. You see, even though there's no noxious weeds yet, okay, and they're not in existence because they're part of the curse. In chapter 3, after Adam sins, weeds coming out of the ground and, and making it hard is part of the curse. So even though there's no weeds for Adam to worry about, the ground is so fertile and the, and the plant cover so lush, it seems like he's there to control it, isn't he? He's there to keep the garden in check, to keep it looking beautiful and, and, and in order as God created it. You know, the word keep here actually means to guard it, to guard it. It's the idea that Adam was to exercise careful loving stewardship over this garden that God has given him. God gives him a job. He says, here's your home. Now dress it and keep it. Till the soil and keep it in check. Guard it. Look after it. He's to work to keep this garden looking beautiful and orderly, not overgrown. That's his job. That's what God's given him to do. You know what's interesting here is that even in this perfect world that God has made, Man is given work to do. It's important for us to understand. This is the the perfect world before sin. And what does God do? He gives Adam work. This is important for us to understand that work is not a curse. It's not a curse. Rather, work, labor, is an opportunity for us to use our abilities, to use opportunities to honor and glorify our God. That's what Adam's work was all about, wasn't it? As he's tilling the soil, as he's keeping the garden, it's about glorifying God. It's about working to, to honor and working with God too. God planted it and God says, now you keep it. He's working with God. You see, the ideal world is not one of laziness. It's not one of idleness. But rather, it's one of serious activity and service. And even in the new heaven and new earth, we will serve the Lord, we will work. Uh, Revelation 22, as we, we were over there earlier, but let's go there again. Revelation 22. <clears throat> Excuse me. Revelation 22 and verse 3. <clears throat> it says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Here we are in the new heaven, new earth. There's no sin. The curse has been completely removed. And what does it say? His servants shall serve him. We will be serving the Lord for all eternity. We won't just be sitting around idle, lazing around, because that's not God's intention. That's not God's creation. We were created to work. We were created to serve him. You see, it was only after Adam sinned that work became toil or became hard. If you go back to Genesis 3... Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. It says, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. 
Uh, verse 19, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. You see, work became toil, became hard, with the weeds and everything else growing, after Adam's sin. The curse you know, affected work, if you like. But that was never God's original intention. God wanted us to work and labor and serve Him, His glory. You know, as believers, we need to realize that, don't we? We need to realize we were created to work. We were created to serve, and our service is to the Lord. We are to take the talents, the abilities that God has given us, and we are to work, we are to labor, we are to serve to His glory. You see, we have an opportunity here on this earth to work with God, to labor for Him on this earth, both for the good of man and for God's glory. And that includes our secular jobs, and it also includes our service within the local church. We are to do it to the glory of God. God created us to work. You know, therefore, we need to seek to know what he wants us to do and then do it to his glory. You know, isn't that what 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 says? It says, whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. And that applies to our work, doesn't it? Our service. Whatever it is, a secular job or our labor and service within the church, God created us to work, to serve him. Fourthly and lastly this morning, now we see the test of the garden. We've talked about the trees, we've talked about the topography, the tenants, and now lastly we see the test of the garden. Verse 16 of chapter 2, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree... Of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The final thing I want us to consider this morning is the test that God put in place here in the garden. Verse 16 tells us that Adam is given permission to eat of every tree within the garden. Verse 16 there says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree. Of the garden thou mayest freely eat. It didn't matter which tree it was, Adam had permission to partake of it. Do you realize that that even includes the tree of life? Mentioned earlier on. The tree of life is, is in this here. He's allowed to partake of every tree of the garden, including the tree of life. It's all freely given to Adam, and God says it's for you, for food. It's, it's yours. Partake of it. There's only one tree out of all of it that Adam is not allowed to partake of. And that is, of course, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Verse 17, as we read before, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. This was the only restraint placed upon Adam. The only rule. But it was a rule designed, excuse me, was a rule designed to test man's love for God. You see, it gave Adam the ability to reject God's word if he wished. It gave him the choice. It was a test, if you like, too, that was stacked in Adam's favor. You know, you think about it. God had given Adam every reason to love and to trust him. God gave Adam every reason to love and trust him. He'd given Adam life. You know, he breathed into him the breath of life. 
He'd given Adam this beautiful home that we've talked about this morning with plenty of food to eat. He'd, he'd basically given Adam everything he could ever want and everything he could ever need. God had provided it for him. Everywhere he looked, Adam could see the evidence of God's love for him. Now, Adam naturally should therefore assume that any instruction coming from God was likewise a product of God's love, and therefore Adam should willingly obey it. See, the point I'm trying to make is that there was every reason for Adam to obey God and no reason for him to disobey. You see, this test was stacked in Adam's favor, wasn't it? It's not as if God had made it extremely hard for him, made it extremely difficult. God wanted him to fail. No, God had made it stacked in his favor that he do the right thing. There was every reason for Adam to obey God. And there was absolutely no reason for him to disobey. When he considered all God had done for him, when he considered God's love. You see, the important part here with this test is that God gave Adam a choice. By doing so, God made sure that man was a free moral agent. He had a free choice. He had a free will. Man was able to make his own choice. Now, we often say it, but God didn't want robots. He didn't want robots who would just do as he said, regardless of what it was, just blindly obey him. That's not what God wanted. God wanted man to obey him out of love. And that's why God put this test in place. That's why God put the tree in the garden and commanded Adam not to partake of it. The commentator Morris writes, he says, This was the simplest imaginable test of man's attitude towards his creator. Would he trust and obey because he loved the one who had shown such love for him? Or would he doubt God's goodness and resent his control? rejecting and disobeying his word on even such an apparently trivial restriction as one forbidden fruit in a whole paradise of abundant provision. That's the point, isn't it? This was the simplest imaginable test, which would really test man. Would test man. And the consequence of disobeying this command is quite clear, isn't it? Verse 17 at the end, it says... For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Death was the consequence. And of course, primarily we're talking about spiritual death here. It's talking about separation from God for all eternity. But it also includes physical death. You know, if Adam partook of the fruit, he would immediately die spiritually, be separated from God, and he would begin to die physically. The decision Adam would make here in the garden is one that would affect all mankind, affect all of his descendants. And we know from chapter 3 that sadly Adam failed this test. Adam partook of the fruit. He disobeyed God's one simple command. And in doing so, death passed upon all men. Romans 5 verse 12. We all became sinners. 
That's the reason we're born in sin today, the reason we're lost, the reason we're spiritually dead and on our way to hell is because of what took place in the Garden of Eden. And we can't turn around and blame Adam because we all would have made the same choice. That's the point. He was in the perfect situation with no uh, hindrances, nothing to pressure him to do the wrong thing, everything to pressure him to do the right thing. And Adam still disobeyed God. And so we all would have made the same choice. Because of Adam's sin, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. You know, the Garden of Eden, as we've talked about this morning, was a beautiful place, prepared to be the perfect home for man. It was a place of work, a place of service for God, but it was also a place of testing. A place of testing, and sadly, Adam, representing us, failed miserably. You know, we can praise God this morning that at the same time, God already had a plan of salvation. God already had a plan in place. He already knew he was going to send his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to earth. He already knew that his son was going to die upon the cross, be buried and rise again so that we might be saved through simple faith in him. You see, in Adam, we all became sinners lost and on our way to hell, but in Christ, we can all be saved. And that's the wonderful truth. Even here at the very beginning, God had a plan. God knew what he was going to do. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the Garden of Eden. Lord, the description given to us this morning and, Lord, the considerations from this, Lord, that we were created to work, we were created to serve you. Lord, we, we thank you, Lord, for the test that you put in place. But, Lord, even as you put in place that test, you already had in place a way of salvation. And we thank you and we praise you for that. Lord, may you bless the rest of our day now. May you bless our afternoon and bring us back together at 5 o'clock to meet again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.